0: Welcome, everybody, to episode number 28 of The Hopeful Majority. My name is Manu Meal, and today's guest will be the CEO of the Future Caucus, Layla Zayden. Layla leads the country's largest bipartisan organization of young lawmakers, state, federal, you name it, which is what we need today. Don't you think? We need people across the political aisle working together, engaging, listening to each other. The question that we'll be asking today is, Is bipartisan progress and legislation actually possible in a highly divided environment? I'm super excited for this conversation. Last week, we had on Noelle Fitchett. As you know, every Monday, this show gets released on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. The reason for the show is because we're trying to build really productive, insightful conversations across lines of difference to fight outrage, build nuance, live in a world in which this is possible. And usually we have monologues for each episode. But today I'm gonna do a little bit different, which is before going to the conversation, I'm just gonna share a couple of thoughts I had about this conversation. And then we'll go straight into the conversation. Layla, at the end of this conversation says, I need America to work. And boy, did that sentiment resonate with me. I need America to work. Hallelujah, shout that from the rooftops. Who else is thinking that? And the question becomes, well, what do we do to make it work? And one of the things that keeps coming up is the fact that, You talk to most people in the country, and that's actually the impetus for the hopeful majority, the name. Why do we call it the hopeful majority? Well, because when you talk to most people in the country, most people are like you and I. You know, I think most people want America to work. I think most people want to meet people that are different than themselves and have a constructive conversation. I think most people are okay with the fact that we should be able to disagree and walk away, that we should be able to disagree and still make progress. That diversity is a a good thing, that the fact that we have so many different ideas and so many people with different backgrounds and the fact that the only way we make it work is for us to actually listen to each other is probably a good thing. And so then the question becomes, why is that not happening? How is it possible? Given the demand for this work, given the fact that most people share that sentiment, well... How do we get our elected lawmakers to actually recognize that? Because it seems like if you look at Congress or, you look at our state legislators, it looks absolutely hopeless. I think the approval rating for Congress is like nine percent, which is only slightly better than how I did throughout high school. Nine percent. That's sad. That's shocking. And yet, at the same time, Layla comes on and we talk about the fact that, One third of all federal and state legislation has been put forward by young lawmakers, and that legislation is relatively across party lines. We also talk about the fact that there are six key issues right now in society that are relatively bipartisan. There's progress happening right now, and you'll hear that in the conversation. And so the fact is that there's a lot of things out there that give us hope for the fact that things are possible, that there is demand, that America can work. And the question is, how do we tell the stories of success, of hope? I had on Ben Recky, who was, I think, on episode 26, and we talked about how we make these stories not some kumbaya feel-good civility conversation, but how do we make them punchy, impactful, so that people actually feel like there's real solid, tangible reason to not only feel hopeful, but that when you and I are sitting here and listening to each other and we say, actually, we do not like the fact that there's these really hot culture wars that consume our politics and that nothing gets done, that actually when you and I feel that way, we are in the majority, that we're in the hopeful majority. And I hope that this conversation with Layla demonstrates, because it certainly did for me, That there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. The question is whether or not we're highlighting those reasons. And so without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Layla. Layla Zayden, welcome to the hopeful majority.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we've, uh, we obviously never talked to each other. and, (laughs) And this is the first time that we're ever having a conversation. And given our long history of of the work that we've done together and the respect that i've had for your work i know that you've got a big announcement which is that the organization that you 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 led called millennial action project which you're still leading for the record (laughs) is now called the future caucus
1: new name future caucus
0: what what was the millennial action project and what is the future caucus
1: Um, well, first of all, I'm so happy to be here, and, and uh, I'm glad that you finally thought to invite me to be a guest on your podcast. I guess my invite got lost in the mail. Yeah,
0: you're guest number uh, 28, so don't get too excited. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Millennial Action Project was, and uh, you know, still lives on in spirit through Future Caucus, the nation's largest cross-partisan organization of young elected officials, and. What we did was really just connect young leaders to one another across party lines, help them work together, so that political polarization would not be an obstacle to solving big problems. Um, it was founded in twenty thirteen by our friend Stephen Olacara and when he started the organization, the only young people in politics were millennials, and so it was kind of a synonym. and now, I kind of feel like millennial might be a synonym for middle-aged or certainly like <laughs> young. <laughs> um, and so it was time to make sure that the organization could grow with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the people who were in it and the new generation of leaders who were so excited to see run and, and serve. And so Future Caucus um, is all about working with millennial and Gen Z elected officials to help solve problems and help mm-hmm. do it together.
0: So now that people know what it is that you do and what this organization is all about obviously like i want to get into your your personal story and and a- actually i'm going to use this use this conversation excuse to, to ask you questions that i haven't actually asked you before because i think like your story is, is particularly interesting as you think about the evolution of young social entrepreneurs as they sort of develop careers in trying to make a difference but before we get to any of that you just said that you're leading an organization of bipartisan lawmakers that are young from the left and the right, Mm -hmm. and they're not getting into like massive food fights and destroying (laughs) each other. Like these people exist. I think like that's the first question that an everyday person would ask. And so that's the question I have to ask you, which is that, do they actually exist?
1: They exist, they exist. And not only do they exist, but over the course of uh, our organization's history, We've had 1,800 of them join our movement. Um, And so they are in Congress. They are in state legislatures. There's plenty more of them who we haven't yet engaged in our work. Um, But the thing that they all share is that they ran for office because they actually, can I curse on this? I won't curse.
0: It's it's allowed for everything. So you can say whatever you'd like.
1: Well, listen, I was going to say they give a shit. They ran for office because they want to fix. Okay,
0: something. I have to pause you there. That's like the lowest threshold curse word you could have come up with. That's that's <laughs> like on that, that, that's that's on the barrier. I thought you were about to go. Okay, yes, yes, you can say that. I. Think I don't
1: want to offend I, your <laughs> listeners, Manu.
0: Your uh, listeners probably know. My listeners probably know you quite well too. So I, I think they just discovered a side of Layla that is just uncensored.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. Well, listen. You know, you asked the question: Do they exist? And and the answer is they want to get things done and it's super frustrating to get elected and then feel like you're running up against a brick wall and mm-hmm. so what the future caucus offers is a way to actually do the job that you wanted to do and it's really um, a breath of fresh air for most of them um, and there's a lot of them more than more than you might expect
0: yeah so the the reason why there's actually a reason why you're your guest 28 specifically and the reason for that is because guest 27 guest 26 uh Noel fitchett and the person before that like they they're young leaders that are focused on building a, a grassroots movement outside of politics right yeah. about bringing people together before that we had this we were doing this presidential candidate series where we had a lot of um uh, uh people on that are running for candidates and they're thinking about their politics and so what i was curious about is like you're leading this organization of these bipartisan lawmakers and as you're saying they're working together they're thinking together so naturally, where, where this goes for me is that you just never hear these stories of, you know, everyday lawmakers, young people, state and national and federal that are actually engaging across lines of difference. Why is that? Why is it that we've never heard these stories? And the first question I ask is, do they actually exist?
1: <laughs> it's sexy to hear the conflict stories, right? To hear the drama, to hear the things that are going wrong. Um, there's an expression in newspaper if it bleeds it leads um i think our you know friends at starts with us have released a report that a lot that says hyper partisan politicians get 4 to 1 the amount of coverage that mm. uh, you know lawmakers who are just putting their heads down and governing get and so it doesn't mean that there's four times as many of these people it just means they're getting mm. Uh, distorted in terms of how big of a, of a cohort that they are. Um, and so I think one of the value adds that, that Future Caucus gives is we get to tell their stories. We get to try to be creative about where we tell those stories. Um, and that has two really important impacts. One, obviously lots more people know about these awesome superstars, but two, it provides a lot of positive reinforcement to the elected mm. officials who are in there doing the good work, who can see their leadership recognized, um,
0: because it, they probably feel like they're they're alone on an island, right? Like doing doing this bipartisan yeah. type of work.
1: It's lonely. Leadership leadership yeah. is lonely, and uh, political leadership, I would say, in particular, it's a tough time to serve. You have to make hard decisions every day, um, and especially think about it at the state level. Um, state sessions are only a few months out of the year. And so for most of the rest of the year, you have another job, probably you have a life and you're juggling so many different things while also being looked at as this um, instrument of, uh, five, you know, maybe 50% of the district, this instrument of like evil and mm. having to navigate that is you know, personally really taxing. And so to give people a community and to give them um, some, some positive reinforcement, what it does for the human spirit is so important. And I think that mm-hmm. translates into really powerful policy at the end of the day.
0: I, I have to ask, like, if I'm a younger person listening to this and I hear you talking about these legislators and lawmakers as if they're almost normal humans, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I could almost do that. And then I my immediate next thought is, I, I actually don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> what 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 would you say to somebody that thinks about our politics right now? And this country, frankly, is built on this notion that you have everyday amazing young people, Americans, doesn't matter where they come from running for office, standing up for what they believe in. And yet, when I think about politics, I want to like, throw up or look the other way. Mm -hmm. What do you tell those people?
1: Listen, you have to know your why, right? It's not going to work if you uh, run for office because you just want power. And you think that then running for office is going to make you happy. You're that Mm -hmm. you're walking into like a pretty terrible situation because you don't have a strong why. You don't have a strong solution that you are trying to advance or at least a problem that you're trying to dig into. I think that's the question that young people need to ask themselves, not uh, the method, like not to think about like, ooh, do, is like this institution of democracy, like do I want to put myself in that position? The question you have to ask is, what is the thing in my life that I want to fix or for my community that I want to fix? And mm. that often, that positive question is a driver that is much, much stronger for most of the people who who have these seats than some of the negative perceptions that help us frame, I think, that less helpful question.
0: So you've just taken the complete wind out of the sails of this entire podcast because the last question we always ask everybody is, what is your why? And the reason for it is exactly <laughs> what you just listed, which is like... It, it is a positive aspiration for what you should do. It's an affirmative statement on your life. So every guest gets asked at the end of the show, what is your why? But because apparently you're so smart and you've listened to every Hopeful Majority episode, you've just brought it up right now. I have to ask you, what is your why?
1: Oh, do I have to I have to answer now? All right, okay. I guess you you can
0: it. wait. Do that's you want to wait? Right? We, we can wait.
1: Well- Let's wait, let's wait. Okay, I'll do it at okay. the
0: end. Okay, because I think it would be really- I need
1: professor, please.
0: <laughs> because I can imagine like somebody listening to this and they're like, yeah, that's true. What is your why? How do you actually go about finding it? So well, let me ask you that. Like, how How do you go about finding your why?
1: You have to pay attention. I think a democracy only works when people are engaged, right? And mm-hmm. like it or not, democracy is the way that we've organized our society that we live in. It's the method by which we resolve our conflicts it's how we uh, move things forward um, and it only works if people are paying attention are fully participating if everybody has the right to fully participate right um and and so to find your why as a young person you have to you have to look around you have to notice things what um what's working well that you want more of what is not working well that you want less of is it something that has to do with your school, public education? Is it something about, um, you know, the infrastructure in your community, public transportation? Um, paying attention, I think, is a, a necessary first step. And then it'll become clear to you. You know, I think um, people, uh, I listened to this other great podcast called How I Built This. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. And they, they interview entrepreneurs about, like why? Did, how did they get the idea to start like incredible companies like Warby Parker or mm-hmm. um, uh, just you know all sorts of different like random companies and and it's always uh, the their why is like they personally encountered a problem that they wanted to solve mm. and I think that's so powerful because it's so simple it doesn't have to be some esoteric academic like you know yeah it's, it's just like. You, what
0: what problem did you engage and encounter?
1: Yeah. What's um, something you looked around and said, eh, I don't like that.
0: Hmm. Did you uh, come across, have you seen the study at all, uh, recently that says that, uh, I think it's like 50 to 60% of Gen Z's top job is to be an, it wants to be an influencer or a YouTuber. Okay. And, and I guess, it again goes to this notion of of have are people actually asking what is their why are they just going after the cool thing I have to ask you like as as you've this is not me labeling you but as you've labeled yourself a millennial um, what 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 <laughs> you was said like
1: that's a bad word no I
0: I, <laughs> I did I did not say this Gen Z is not any better it's like the generation of zombies but uh, when <laughs> like what was the the hot thing that people want like if you ran that survey back you know when you were in college. Like what was, was there a certain thing that people really wanted to do? Was there a thing in your generation where it's like, that's the job?
1: It's a good question. You know, I, uh, so I graduated in, in 2010 and around then a lot of people were going into, uh, tech, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so I think at that moment, um, sort of startups and, uh, that kind of notion of, like building something fast and breaking things, which obviously in hindsight, we can see how uh, some of the consequences of those decisions have, have rippled and played out. But I think for, you know, the, there's always something kind of like sexy happening in the, in the national consciousness mm-hmm. at, at the moment. Like you can go even further back and look at um, sort of when, when we first started sending people to the moon and all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be an astronaut because that was, like, the new cool space cowboy thing. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? And so I think there's, yeah, you're, you're totally right. There's, like, always a, um, I think, uh, uh, what's, like, what's, like, the sexy, flashy, visible thing that uh, seems new and cool? Um, yeah. And do people actually want to do that or do they just want to do it because they see it?
0: Hmm. Do you think it would be... What do you think it would take to make, you know, politics and should running for office be that thing? Like, should people be aspiring at scale to want to go into office? Or is that is that actually the way that the system was not built to be that perhaps it it is supposed to be a job that is very difficult and painful? And in in fact, uh, it's meant for few people. Like, how do you think about how we should be thinking about running for office? Um, And is is that something where it should be like the new cool thing that everybody wants to do or would that actually break the system further?
1: What a great question. I I would answer like the thing that everybody should want to do is be a citizen, is be an informed and engaged citizen. Like that should be at scale, um, how we bring more people into the conversation about the kind of society we wanna have it doesn't mean that your role in that citizenry is to be the public servant. It could be the you know government employee or the voter or the um, you know town hall participant or the volunteer, and it looks different for everyone. But actually showing up and paying attention and being a part of it—that is something that I would love to sort of incentivize at scale and to help. Um, if, Make sure that is visible in a in a positive way and not just a negative way. On the elected mm. leader side, um, you know, I don't want people to see it as a job. I think if you're running for office, you have to see it as a calling. You have to see it as something bigger than yourself. It's not just about um, getting a paycheck. Because in a lot of these positions, you're not going to be very happy if that. <laughs>
0: there there is no the paycheck. <laughs>
1: Uh, definitely not, you know. Definitely not that um, the glory. Like a lot of the most impactful pieces of policy of public policy that have advanced have been done behind the scenes, and uh, the credit has to get shared. Or some people actually don't get any credit for it because of um, you know a, a whole bunch of other variables. And so you can't just be in it for the glory. Either. You have to be interested in this role because you see a higher calling and, and something bigger than yourself. And you decide to take that leap of faith in service of uh, people outside of you.
0: You know, what's what's really interesting about that is that in some ways that actually almost sounds inspiring this notion that politics isn't glorifying, because in right now it seems like the people that are being driven to it are driven because they see a lot of glory in it like i think there's actually a romantic vision of politics where you don't get a lot of the credit and you're only there to solve problems and make your fellow citizens lives better like it feels like that's why it was built in the first place
1: Mm -hmm. it's i mean that is a representative democracy totally you're supposed to be there to help sort of synthesize all of the mm-hmm. different perspectives and opinions and have like real deliberative conversations with, with other people. And then um, together these, these brilliant you know, conscientious people come to a solution about how to move forward, how to move into the future. It, it doesn't always work out like that. I think there are a lot of times when, you know, people are doing their best to make that happen.
0: So this this keeps coming up in in some of the conversations I've had with like elected officials in the past couple of months because it, y- as you're saying, like, yes, politics is about representing and working for your citizens. It's not about taking all the credit. It's not about, you know, building a massive social media following. And yet the the one word that keeps coming up is incentives. It's like I had a great conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to talk that way. But you think that'll help me grow my Twitter following? Or which, which, by the way, is like such a sad commentary. You have a leading <laughs> presidential candidate saying it or or, you know, Andrew Yang is like, yeah, the reason why I created math is because it would help me grow my following, which is not what I want to do, but it's how you get elected. So how, can you speak a little bit to this word incentives and and how big of a role does it play in the way that elected officials choose to operate?
1: Mm -hmm. Incentives, incentives, incentives. You know, I'm going to throw in another word too, which is systems. And I think a lot of things get blamed on... Mm big intractable ideas that people sort of throw their hands up in the air and say it's too big and you know it's the system or it's these incentives and there's nothing I can do about it and it almost gives people permission to be another person adding weight to whatever those incentives are to whatever that system is it gives you cover to say well it's Mm -hmm. not me it's the system and so I reject that notion that it is uh, impossible or uh, we are unable to push back against systems or incentives because systems and incentives only exist because people created those systems mm-hmm. that create those incentives. And so if people built it, we can build something else. Um, and and that's why I get really inspired by young people, by fresh perspectives, by people who... Um, are not necessarily uh, calcified into the status quo and how things always have been and the systems that exist and how they must always be. Young people bring, you know, for better or worse, I think a willingness to just like do things differently or to buck the status quo or at least to bring fresh perspectives or a new piece of information to how we think about um, doing things a little bit differently. Um, Yeah, it's almost...
0: it, no, no, no. I was just going to say it almost sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you're, yeah. you're like, the system is massive. It's screwed up. And the only way that I can win in this is by continuing to participate in it. And then there's like no chance to to actually address or change it. But you you go ahead. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you study some of the, the most successful and like at first impossible seeming movements in, in history, right? Like the civil rights movement or um, you know, you were just, you were just in, in India, like the movement for, for independence. They were like, yeah. these um, leaders were able to, and I guess there were some ways, where they really were savvy about um, w- where to apply pressure in order to create certain reactions that would then lead to change. But they didn't say, well, this is the system or these are the incentives and nobody can exit this like doom loop. They said, no, I'm gonna, we're gonna do things differently.
0: Hmm. How do you divorce the conversation of systems and like trying to change systems from ideology? Cause I can imagine somebody listening to this and politics is so coded right now, Layla, where you say something like, we're trying to change the system. And I can already hear somebody thinking, well, that's going one way or the other. And and do you think there's hope in our generation where actually systems change and this notion that maybe we shouldn't participate in the system is something that exists across ideology?
1: Hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think there's a worldview. Um, well... I mean, I guess the question is, like, what has the system done for me lately? And that's maybe the the dividing line. It's not necessarily along a certain ideology, hmm. um, but but along a certain... That's
0: funny. What has the like, system done for me lately? <laughs> comfort
1: level, right? Like, if you're comfy and cozy in the way that things are, then, like, yeah, you don't really need to push too hard. You don't need to get too creative about how do we do things differently. But if things aren't working, then, like, you're... Um, like riled up or you want to see things change or you're open-minded enough to like consider but you know potentially kind of damaging ideas potentially incredibly transformative ideas like the comfort level i think that you have with the system is maybe more of the important um dividing line about what happens next and then you know Manu, i've heard you talk about this um as well how you then mobilize people is along this temperament spectrum Mm -hmm. not along like a partisan spectrum but then how do you figure out who has the right temperament to do something positive with that energy?
0: Yeah, and and, and like this temperament thing—that's actually why this thing is called the hopeful majority. It's like mm. almost every you know every presidential candidate, every national campaign that's changed the country. Like there, there's been a notion that there is a group of people out there that actually make up most of the country, and they're not being heard and and the way to hear and reach them is we have to talk in some sort of language that creates a new divide. And like maybe this is cynical, but I feel like the only way to bridge an existing divide is to create a new one. And but but at the same time that that new divide is not an exclusive one, but it's actually built on 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 a divide of temperament, of the way that we think and approach. But in some ways you know there's also this like cheesy characteristic around calling things a temperamental divide. Like, you know, it divides the forces of evil from the forces of good is whether or not you're open-minded or closed minded There's just It just sounds kind of dumb in some ways, but it also seems to be the case. Like, wh- what would you say unifies your legislators? Like, why, why do they come join this caucus? Like, why are they there?
1: They want a community of like-minded peers. And for us, they share a generational identity. And so to be a young person in politics is to be in the minority. Most people are not young. And uh, to be able to commiserate with your colleague who is in the similar life stage as you or, um, you know, can maybe poke fun at even people in your own party about uh, not knowing what, like, TikTok is or how to turn, like, the Siri off of your cell phone. And they're just, like, hearing... Chirp, chirp, chirp during a a (laughs) meeting. Um, It's nice to have people who you feel like you can relate to, and I think that that um, that starting point um, in and of itself like shakes up the 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 status quo and like creating a new kind of center of gravity where you might connect with people who the system itself doesn't normally uh, plop together.
0: What is the system?
1: Mm. now we're getting meta now we're getting like big. it's
0: like i i was i was talking to marianne williamson who's for those that might not know well you should watch episode 18 but (laughs) in case you don't know she's running for president on the democratic side but you know her claim which i think there's some truth to is like the system and the establishment have like totally blacked her out and there's just no word of her getting out there but like i kept i kept i wanted to ask her what is this like what what do you define as the system it gets thrown around so much
1: it you know it does and it almost makes me wish that there was a, a more defined system because if there was just sort of one person in charge of like a system that was controlling everything i feel like we could fix everything we, could we just take out that person we just, <laughs> tell that. we just replace that person with somebody who wants to build a better system and uh, you know problem solved but it's you know it's a lot messier it's a lot messier than that um, it's the combination of a lot of different ecosystems and environments in which people exert influence over one another and believe or buy into certain assumptions or notions and the totality of that creates this sort of equilibrium that people believe is either uh, you know threatening them or or you know oppressing them or is maintaining like a, a negative piece in the mm. country until like the overthrowers uh, destroy the the system, and so I don't think that the system often gets used in a positive way. I will say that.
0: Mm. So it's like your theory of what is the system is less about the people, the individuals, and it's much more about sort of the dynamics. Like, w- would you say that the system is, you know, the fact that. The algorithm incentivizes engagement, and the fact that you know there's a primary system in which if you're running for office, you have to run to one extreme or the other. Like, would you say the system is made up of these dynamics and these these levers, or it is also very heavily dependent on people?
1: Yeah, I would say. So I would say what you just described to me sounds a little bit like incentives, right? Like Mm -hmm. the way in which uh, elections are run that incentivize people to run to either sort of end of the political extreme, that's, those are incentives. I kind of feel like the system is something even more vague than that. It's Mm. like our, our, our system of beliefs of what we believe is true becomes the system in which we exist. Um, Mm. And if you, if you never believe that change is possible, you'll continue to just exist within that system. You know, and, and I think Donald Trump is a great example of that, like he broke the system when he just ignored certain norms. Um, and for some people that was a good thing, for some people that was a bad thing, but he was like, I don't believe this is a system that is real, I'm gonna do something totally differently. And, you know, because of the position that that he had was able to do that, uh, you know, on on his on his own. I think when you think about other types of change that you want to see in the country, that's where like organizing comes in, getting lots Hmm. of people together around a common sort of objective, but that helps transform systems.
0: So if one was listening to this, they would say that it seems like Layla is not a fan of the system. Or at least certain parts of it. So then the next question becomes, what do you not like about the system? If we got very specific and tangible, like if I'm a, a, a young person listening to this or or anybody, frankly, and I'm like, hey, you know what? Uh, the problem that I want to challenge is this notion of the system that constantly keeps causing people to behave certain ways. Yeah. What do you not like about the system?
1: I don't like that people believe that they have to fit into a certain box in order to find safety within our political system or within the way that we solve problems in our country. And that's true for how elected officials might or might not work with each other or give credence to different ideas that originate from other parts of the political spectrum. Uh, It's true for how people might decide to campaign or who they might decide which door to knock on or where to spend advertising dollars to get their message out. And it's true for how voters might decide who is a friend and who is a foe based on, uh, you know, at this point, kind of an arbitrary divider of uh, what a certain political party mm-hmm. believes as it relates to a slate of issues. The truth is, people are much more complicated than that, believe a whole mix of things to be true. No single one of us align completely uh, with anyone one you know, specific political ideology. There may be parts of it that are really super important to us. And so we decide that we fit more on, you know, in this camp than than the other based on that. But the totality of it, it's impossible for, you know, in a country of 330 million people for the, you know, for two boxes to like
0: neatly
1: sort everyone. And so for me, I think that system, like the belief of like, you're either this or that, like this binary notion um, is, it's just not, in 2023 you have a much more complicated life um Mm. and it just doesn't make sense to to operate that way with those sets of assumptions
0: so i have to think that like complexity and nuances always exist in the country like i I don't even think at the founding there were just two there was a lot of factions you know when the country was founded there was there was never this notion of like everybody there i don't think there's ever a time in this country where Everybody fit neatly into a Republican or a Democrat or whatever the parties were. You know, you have the Whig Party before mm-hmm. that. You had the Federalists. Um, what about this current moment makes it such that we always stick to this binary? And mm-hmm. and also, do you think that that binary should exist because it might lead to more stability?
1: Hmm. I think the. I, I don't know if I if if I think that uh, that leads to more stability. Just having two two um, sort of big mega blocks. I think the um, you know what I've I've heard say is in in a lot of ways the parties are both too strong and too weak mm. uh, in in yeah. ways that um, you know are uh, kind of like c- counter. But but like you want you want a party that. Um, can, can help like clarify to voters what is the what is the position like what do I stand for how do you get um, results and also how do I um, how do you then also identify candidates and help help them get their message out and in, um in the latter parties are really really strong and have a tight grip on that and in the former um, I you know there's some um, some places where they're, they're pretty weak and, and leave huge, giant openings for, for people to potentially sort of um, overtake what, what the message ought to be for what they decide that it, it should be, those individual candidates. So, so yeah, so I don't know if that um, leads to, to stability. I think it leads to actually like a lot of conflict and um, a constant, like, uh, if it's always gonna be like a 50 plus one tussle Like, that's super unstable. That's like very Mm -hmm. disorienting. It's like um, standing on a subway car, but you're in between the two cars and you're surfing like the whole time. Not sound like a pleasant. Way to travel, and as somebody who is from New York, like I have been in between subway cars trying to surf and like not lose my life, (laughs) rats in the tunnels.
0: And it's not inspiring. There's a there's this is very nerdy of me, but there's actually this goes to international relations theory where people IR scholars oftentimes debate is a bipolar system where you know you have the Soviet Union, the United States more stable than a multipolar system. Or is a unipolar system much more stable? And I, I often think about this in the context of our domestic politics, like you're working with all these state legislators, right? And they're, and, and these federal lawmakers that are young, and, and you said that they have this generational commonality that brings them together. Mm-hmm. And in the system that we are in today, do you actually see them prioritizing the fact that they have some generational commonality as a reason to work together? Yeah. Or... Is it just that they they engage they they work they're they're with each other? They might be going to similar events, but right. ultimately the party identity dominates the legislative okay. process,
1: right? Like, is it just a nice sort of oh, it's civility? You could talk nice to each other, but then at the end of the day, you go home and you you you've got your team. You
0: you ultimately team. go back to your team.
1: Yeah. Well, the good news is. Uh, they're statistically better than their older counterparts at, at building coalitions. So right mm-hmm. now, young people, and I'm counting young as 45 and un- I'm probably just going to keep changing the age as I <laughs> age. To, to young is, but for today, it's 45 years old and younger. Um, we're about one out of five state lawmakers. Um, and people who are millennials or, or Gen Z or younger in the country are about half the general population right now. So one out of five- Wait, just to
0: emphasize that one out of five lawmakers are 45 or younger.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which is uh, you know not representative to the broader population. So we're underrepresented in the halls of power. Mm-hmm. And yet of all of the bipartisan legislation that got enacted last year, not just introduced, not just passed, but like signed by the governor is a law now, one third was authored wow. by a young person. So we're one out of five lawmakers but one out of three pieces of bipartisan legislation so we are walking into these um public service responsibilities and like hungry to build coalitions. why and is that I, mean, I think my listen what i've heard from the from the legislators that i talk to mm-hmm. is that they run for office because they know their why because they have something that they want to get done and they don't have time to sit around and just, you know, try to shout their joyful noise within their political party. They'll work with whoever and do whatever it takes to move the ball forward. And so they build those bridges. They look for the opportunities. Um, you know, I think one other thing that's that's worth considering is young people are often not connected to networks of wealth or don't have huge savings. And so to run for office against oftentimes more well-funded opponents or people who maybe are older and have more access to, to big pocketbooks, young people have to be kind of scrappy and they have to be mm-hmm. go-getters. They have to be hustlers and entrepreneurs. And I think that translates when they get into, uh, get into office that they're willing to like do the work to get the thing done. And oftentimes that means building coalitions with people who you might not agree with on everything, but they sure as heck will help you pass your bill
0: what's the what's the word on the on the state legislator street about the fact that our two leading presidential candidates for 2024 are above the age of 75
1: oh gosh you know have you heard of the word uh gerontocracy i have yeah it's so Could could you explain
0: it could you explain it for the listeners
1: you know I, I will i just want to say it's so depressing that we both know what the word gerontocracy means because it means a society governed by old people and uh we i have i learned this word by reading about it constantly in the news in magazines on tv referring to the democracy we have today as a gerontocracy so we are according to media outlets everywhere and my eyes in a gerontocracy hmm. um and like I, I actually like looked up the the origin of the word um, and it's, I, I guess it started in ancient Greece and uh, it literally was a quote from Plato that said, it is for elder, the elder men to rule and for the younger to submit. Hmm. And it's just like, we live in the, Plato came up with this word about how old guys over 60 should be in charge and now we are like widely believed to be in that society. I think it's just very depressing. Um, and I think what it does for lawmakers is not as bad as what it does for young people everywhere, voters, uh, people who are maybe thinking about running for office. Because what it does is it's, it's really demoralizing. And mm-hmm. it makes you feel like you don't have a full voice in the places where decisions are being made, that you don't have a seat at the table, um, that creates uh you know i want to live in a democracy where everybody has a sense of belonging that does not create a sense of belonging um and it depresses civic engagement and ultimately makes it harder to have inclusive decisions and and solutions so So, to answer your question uh, we don't love that it's just you know older people at the at the top of the ticket but that's why who else is on the ballot really matters
0: but is it so i had on um this amazing person named David Gergen. I actually, I actually have his book right here and David, David, I don't know if you've heard of David Gergen, but he, (laughs) he was, yeah. So he was like the presidential advisor for, you know, four different presidents from Nixon to Ford to Clinton to Reagan. First of all, it's, it it was very weird and surreal talking to somebody that's still alive that served in the Ford administration. (laughs) And David, it, you know, he has this interesting take in this book and he talks a lot about this, which is that, you know, uh, that older folks just need to move out of the way. They need to, they just need, you either shit or get off the pot, right? And you got, you got. and he's saying this. And my immediate reaction to that was, I actually don't have a, and maybe I'm just weird in this way. I don't have a problem with older folks leading. The problem that I have is the fact that like 90%, of the legislative seats are occupied by people that are 60 or older, mm-hmm. and that there is no dissemination of ideas. And so I asked him this question, I want to ask you this question, which is, why is that that we just arrived at this, this ending of a gerontocracy? Because I don't see like it written in the Constitution, where it's like, you have to be over 60. And yet, everybody's, everybody's leading at that age.
1: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of reasons, in my opinion. Uh, and you're totally right. There should be Diversity in every sense of the word in our uh, decision making rooms, right? There should be people of every generation. That, you know, I'm not trying to advocate for like a, an age cap, or <laughs> um, but but when when you don't have every, you know everyone's perspective, then you make worse decisions, right? Mm-hmm. It's just you just don't have all of the the information. Um, I think a lot of the um, self-selection of who decides to run for office is a part of it, right? People thinking, well, I don't, maybe I don't have enough experience or uh, maybe I'm not good enough, or, um, you know, it it just seems like you said earlier, maybe like a toxic environment that I don't wanna get involved in. And so I think there's, you know, it seems like a hard job. I'm not gonna, I don't have enough money to do it. I think there's like a lot of um, reasons why somebody might look around and decide like, Ooh, not, not me or not yet. Hmm. Um, and then when they're in a more comfortable period of their lives, when they're not trying to start a family or, um, you know, build all these other experiences that they want to have, um, that take a lot of energy and and time. And they are now in their fifties or sixties and decide that's like the right time. They have more like money and time and, uh, you know, wisdom. like that's the way to do it i think that is that's a um that is a false truth that people hold in their heads that we're starting to see busted now and what i love about david gergen is in i think his first very first chapter of that book um Mm. he cites a future caucus stat which uh you know i'm gonna go on the David,
0: for the record we're plugging your book uh, and you said the future caucus
1: and he, yes, he didn't cite it. So we're just going to make that note here. <laughs> there,
0: D- David Gergen cites the future caucus for the record.
1: <laughs> um, but he talks about how we're actually seeing a huge change that mm-hmm. we're seeing. Uh, and in, in his chapter, he cites the number from uh, 2020, a 266% increase in young people running for Congress. And so there's all sorts of bad things we can say about social media and technology and 24-hour cable news, but I think what it has done is it has awakened in people's minds this notion of the possibility of a of a route as I can solve problems by running for office and being an elected official, um, and so we're start I think we're starting to see a change, in like hopefully you know I hope. 20 years from now, we're not living in a gerontocracy, but it takes time. It takes time to build that bench.
0: Not be morbid, but in 20 years, they might all be, they might pass away. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't mean to be morbid, but but there might be a new gerontocracy. I'm just saying the existing one. Let's
1: not replace it with a new gerontocracy. Let's sort of like equilibrium. I I will say though,
0: again, that uh, that, uh, my personal point on this is I don't think it's a problem if, if, frankly, I think it would be also really scary if everybody leading in government was under the age of 45. You know, I think, I think, I think yeah, that would also equally be weird. I think there's got to be a balance. There's this like RFK quote, which is like, there's, youth is not a time of life. It's a stage of mind. There's a lot of young, old people, a lot of old, young people like Mm there's some total idiots I know that are under the age of 45 and, and just because they're young, they shouldn't be out there. But to your point, I think it's totally out of balance. Now. Yeah. I would love if you're open to, it, I would love to talk to some of the, like your state legislators. Like, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting. We just have to elevate these stories because they're just not being heard.
1: Done. Um, Done.
0: Yeah. It we'll, would be cool. We'll get
1: them on here. We'll get them on okay. here. And you know, next week we have a, um, every year, we do a big award ceremony to shine a light on some of the really outstanding. Uh, What's the
0: date? What's the time date?
1: It's on December 12th in okay. uh, Washington, D.C. We'll be giving an award to Congressman Maxwell Frost uh, of Florida, uh, Rep. Jasmine Clark from Georgia, Rep. Michael Smith from Delaware. And the entire vermont future caucus and all of these folks have done outstanding leadership and deserve to be recognized so i'm plugging them here but we'll also give them an award uh in front of a bunch of fancy people on december 12th
0: that's december 12th so i actually if anybody that's listening and it's gonna be in dc
1: it's in dc yeah and you can find the info on futurecaucus.org okay so when folks
0: actually hear this it's tomorrow so you should, uh, you should you should you should check it out because our episode will actually go live on Monday. Um, there's one last question I want to ask you, and then I want to quickly actually ask you a couple of questions about your journey, because I think it's particularly enlightening at this at this moment. Um, but the last thing I have to ask you, and I, I can imagine people that are in the audience are trying to think about this, which is, are there certain issues in your caucus? or Are there certain things where you're finding particular bipartisan agreement that you feel like should be elevated?
1: we just put out a report um, asking this very question so we pulled hundreds of our lawmakers in our network and said what do you want to work on what have you been effective at working on across uh, party lines and we got six big topics back okay okay so one was housing like number one housing is a problem in states across the country people in urban areas rural um, so housing healthcare was one and we. Talk about things from like mental health, telehealth, to things like maternal health and child wellness, uh, criminal justice reform, energy and the environment, and things like energy infrastructure. So like building grids to build resiliency from uh, natural disasters and storms. Uh, the future of work, workforce development, how mm-hmm. AI is going to disrupt and uh, change what you know everything basically uh and then the last one is modernizing our democracies. so things like legislator pay that make it really unattractive for uh, a young person to to run for office or um you know ways that we can uh, increase government accountability and uh participation
0: do you find some of the culture war hot button issues like gender ideology and free speech and these things that dominate the discourse Do you find them placing particular strains on the relationships of your members?
1: You know, I watched a conversation happen that was incredible to see because it was the first time that I saw one of these, you know, culture war discussions about, um, you know, transgender children happen in a curious and respectful way where nobody yelled nobody got mad and i don't know that anybody walked away with their mind changed but it was um it was unlike anything i've ever seen before and i think the only reason that that happened is because the lawmakers had relationships with each other before they mm. knew each other they you know could could say what was in each other's hearts and knew that they were people of, of good intent and so, when the conversation happened, when questions were asked, and one of the lawmakers had a transgender daughter, and the other lawmaker was asking questions just about that um, from the position of, you know, not the like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, like, whatever. Asking questions. It was good intent. Was really, really good intent. And so, And, and, you know, at the end of the day, like oftentimes the votes go in different directions. And so the lawmakers really need that, uh, assuming good intent or at least um, ability to compartmentalize in ways in order to to move forward. Um, But I think for a lot of legislatures or people who don't have that kind of relationship, those topics destroy the ability to work together on on. Anything, and mm-hmm. so it's really especially important for this cohort of people, for this people, this group of individuals who are writing policy, whose job, whose literal job it is to solve problems on a whole bunch of different issues for a lot of different people, to be able to to move forward.
0: Hmm. I have so many questions I could ask you on that. Like, how? Well, actually, really quickly, like how how do you? How do you try and make that happen? Because I know I'm sure it's not perfect. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of there's some breakdown that happens. But what are you doing or saying to these people that allows them or at least is allowing you to to focus on the issues that I wouldn't say matter, but it is frustrating to see three or four issues prevent you from making progress on like the 90,000 other issues that you could be working on?
1: You have to think about yourself and the work that you're doing from an asset framework and abundance mindset and not what are the like to your point what are the things that we know we're going to disagree about um and like how do we just like get to you know get to the most like watered down middle ground of those that like that's never going to happen and you're going to waste a lot of time instead if you can say what what are things that that i want to work on that you want to work on where can we find where there's even like a 1% overlap? And then how do we bring both of our like lived experiences, what our districts think, um, you know, bring in maybe some like experts who can help us like think about this and actually co-create something. And that feels mm. fun. That feels like uh, tangible and like, you're, you're working on a project together. Yeah. Like and there's like that there's something there. That mindset is like really, really, um, really powerful. You know, and I'll, I'll just say like um, in in Mississippi, we have a future caucus. And uh, when they launched, they had a whole conversation on like, what are the things we want to work on? Hmm. And one of the issues that came up at the time was the state flag, which had a uh, some Confederate oh, no. iconography on it. And somebody said, let's change the state flag. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of people in that room said, that's not something I want to work on. And instead of saying, okay, well, like, now I don't wanna work on anything with you because you don't wanna work on this stuff. They put the flag issue aside. They did things like work on housing affordability, on student debt, uh, on like lowering taxes. And two years later, the issue of the state flag came up again. And this time the um, caucus had built the relationships. They were able to listen to one another about, you know, why that was an issue that was important to them. And together they made the decision that they felt it was right to advance uh, legislation to to change the flag. And that never would have happened, never would have happened without building sort of those relationships and actually getting stuff done together. Like actually like the adrenaline or endorphins or dopamine of like succeeding together at a thing. And then actually tackling bigger and bigger stuff together. And
0: having that shared trust, I mean, it even goes to like our relationship. Like just before this podcast, you and I were talking about an initiative that I would love for you to sign on to. And I bet that if we had had that conversation the first time you and I ever met there, were, of course, you would have many questions and it would probably go through many meetings and you'd be like, should I trust this guy? Who is this guy? Where is this letter going? And now that we've worked together for three, four years, which is crazy to say, um, yeah. there's that shared trust. And that's like, that's like what's required. Um, uh, oh, oh, our time is limited, and the only reason our time is limited, by the way, is because the powers above me say that I can't have conversations more than sixty minutes. I it's don't, the I, system. I, it's the system
1: in here. Don't let the system. Well, I already,
0: I already fought them for like 4 <laughs> sixty minutes. And by the way, there, for the record, there, are, there is no them. It's just, it's just my friends okay. that, that peer pressure me. But the,
1: the deep state is telling us the, we gotta the deep state. Yeah, the
0: hopeful majority is run by the deep state. Clip that. Um, the, but like, I, have never actually asked you this question, but I have to ask it because it, it makes sense. Like given where the conversation is going your personal story, like, have you ever thought about running and I hate being asked this question. Um, and so it's nice to be asking somebody else's question. Um, and, and like genuinely, how do you actually think about that question? I don't mean it in like some weird platitude sense, but yeah. like, how, how do you think about
1: it? Yeah. Um, well, it'd be hard for me to run for office when I'm working as your chief of staff when you're president. So,
0: <laughs> you should tell Stephen that.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, not for the time being, um and you know, I love my job. I think mm-hmm. I have the best job in the world because it is about building other leaders up and they're doing really hard hard work and they are representing communities that need them in these positions to advocate for them to be creative and kind and persistent to get things done and they need a community they need tools resources a peer network um a megaphone to build their resilience to build them up and Mm -hmm. i get i i get fired up getting to do that work um and so you know i i have an amazing team and there would certainly be somebody to step up um, and lead this organization. But for the time being, I, I don't want to run for office because I want to help the people who need help as they are governing after they have run for office. And I want to, I want to keep doing that.
0: Well, so then building on, on the advice that you offered, it it almost sounds like you're describing your why. So what is your why?
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So I just, I want, I need America to work. It, it's got to work. Um, my parents immigrated here from Morocco when uh, they were in their 20s. They actually met in New York, which is uh, where they got married and where I was born. And, and growing up, because our whole rest of the family was in Morocco, we would go for um, months at a time. And I would... You know, I think if you just grow up in the U.S. as like a young person, you don't really like notice that you have democracy. But because I was leaving for two months uh, of the year and living in a foreign country, like I noticed that in New York I had democracy, and I felt really proud to be an American and the fact that my parents had like left their entire, you know, their parents, their families for this land of opportunity and um, to give me and my little sister, you know, a shot at something bigger and better and to have the the freedoms that we had, like, man, I was so proud of that. And, um, we were, I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened. Manu, I don't want to hear how old you were when 9-11 happened, so please don't tell me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and that shook, that, that just, like, shook me in a lot of ways. It, It was complicated, uh because i was moroccan and american and it felt like i had to choose between my identities between being uh an arab girl or a you know an american girl and that was really confusing and it also made me like really scared and confused about why our institutions didn't keep us safe on that on that day and what what were the the problems that um you know are the the institutions that we had um, what, what went wrong, basically. Not necessarily from a national security sense, but just like all of the things wrapped up in that, like what happened before, what happened after, the way we treated people. Um, it just, it made me really passionate about what can I do to make sure the institutions themselves um, are functioning, that we are building a, uh, a country, a society that has room for all of us, where we don't have to choose between uh, being one thing or the other, but we can be both or we can choose. Um, and then at the end of the day, um, we all feel a sense of safety and, and belonging. And so that I think that's a long way of saying if my parents hadn't moved here, I don't think I would be doing, you know, any version of this. And so my why hmm. is my is my mom and dad.
0: Hmm. I I need America to work. I think that's gonna be the title of of the episode and you know your parents I I bet are very proud to see you say that I I I feel like almost like we should do like a part two where I have so many questions to ask you of just your personhood and like you know why what it was like to be in eighth grade when 9-11 happened and why is it that well, okay. Let me ask you this question. This is the this is the question that's coming to me that I feel like I have to ask you, which is, what about you as a person made you want to actually ask those questions when something like 9-11 happened? And then as you went, as you got older, like there there's a lot of other w- routes and things that you could have done. Like why why were you asking those questions about why are institutions didn't keep us safe, or this is the direction that I wanted to take my life?
1: Yeah. I'm a naturally curious person. Um, i I grew up in a a family that both had like uh, you know, my parents grew up in in Morocco, and so my dad was like pretty strict growing up, but then also like worked a lot and he you know, he drove a drove like a cab essentially. Um, and so it was like gone. So there was like sometimes like chaos at home, but then like yeah. rules. And I just grew up as somebody who like really appreciates like rules and order and structure. I'm also the oldest daughter uh, of the family, and like if that's not apparent uh to right now. <laughs> and and so, you know, I think I think the like obviously emotional response to this this horrible moment in, in my life, in the country's life. Um coupled with the need for like things to make sense and for like there to be guardrails and, and rules. I think those two things together and those two like parts of me made it really um, like a passionate question at the front of my mind. And then, you know, I think the last thing I'll say is uh, by chance, we then that summer took a family trip to Washington DC and uh, walked on the campus of Georgetown University where I ended up mm-hmm. going And I learned about the things that students there were studying and it just came, you know, maybe accidentally at this at the perfect moment for me to just decide like, wow, like these are questions I want to keep asking.
0: Well, thank you for, for all you do, because I'm sure that the, the introspection, the journey that you just outlined is a, is a journey that either people have embarked on that are older in their careers or might embark on. And I think that's like the power of just, hearing these perspectives and I've learned a lot from you uh including the fact that man you're just so old no I'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> I just I you know I can't I can't let a serious <laughs> serious, deep moment go by and just let it exist you know I have to put a damper on it but uh thank you for all you do Layla and and thanks for coming on the hopeful majority oh
1: thanks Manu thanks for keeping me hopeful
0: Thank you so much to Layla for joining the whole Majority. Thank you for listening and staying on. If you liked that conversation, leave a like or review on YouTube. Leave a a subscription on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. Remember, we do this every Monday because we're trying to fight outrage, build nuance. And you know what the secret is? You and I got to do it together. We need both of us because there's a hopeful majority of people out there just like you and I, and we got to rally. We got to engage, share this content, share this conversation with people that you think might appreciate it because we're growing and you're growing with us. It's a community. Let's get out there. I'll see you next Monday on the next episode of The Hopeful Majority. I hope you have a good week.